This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Should we do that? Just do like a great economics near you. Leslie Nielsen, like version of that. Have you seen Naked Gun? No. Oh, man. I mean, I'll add it to the list. Welcome to Freightonomics, uh, where we discuss the latest movies and trends. No, this is uh, this is Freightonomics, where we discuss the latest economic and freight market trends, bring them together so that everyone can go about their weekday lives uh, well-informed uh, based on data. Of course, as usual, we offer a little bit of insight there. Uh, Chief Economist Anthony Smith, helps with the economy side. And I am Zach Strickland, head of market intelligence. And thank you for tuning in this week. That's right. And I'm going to be looking down from time to time to monitor LinkedIn because we are streaming live right now. I'll also be monitoring. We're also live on Facebook. Look at that. And YouTube as well. So Meta, if you want to join the show, be a part of the show, comment. We're live right now at the time of this recording. It is noon Eastern standard time. So join in on the show if you have any questions for us or Zach. Yeah, so the, the theme of today's episode is going to be about second-half expectations. Uh, I think we're, a lot of people are still trying to sort through what that means. We had a lot of earnings calls come out over the last week, week and a half. We'll sort through some of those and some of the key takeaways. Uh, we also have, you know, this continued market, freight market, that's showing us that there is still a lot of unpredictability in it. Yeah, it's interesting because we're seeing, I think, a across the board, a lot of downgrading or reduced expectations from some folks and some individuals and not just within transportation, but really it seems like a lot of companies throughout many different industries in the macro economy, especially in the U.S. And it's really interesting to see that really kind of come to, I don't know, ahead because we want to see where this demand kind of goes because we're seeing that, like you said, the unseasonably demand that we don't usually see during this time of the year. Does it sustain? Does it go into, you know, traditional busy holiday where we're seeing pull four for back to school, you know, holiday stuff like that? So it's an interesting time for sure. Yeah. And pull forward for school, like school just started. It's yeah. not pull forward. Also, that freight comes in before August <laughs> uh, most of the time. So it's, it's, it's not like it happens right away. Yeah. There's a little bit of retail uh, activity going on there, but it certainly happens prior to most of the schools starting back. And of course, in the South, schools started back. Uh, in the North, it takes a little bit longer. Uh, but what right now we're seeing is not necessarily something that I would characterize by back to school freight in general. And I'll go through that if you want to count me in. That's right. In three, two, one, go. All right. So this freight market still surprises us with its continued stickiness with the OTBI here, which measures uh, total tenders from shipper to carrier, and it's a measure of our demand. And you can see the white line there is our current year, and it sticks out like a sore thumb. Now, it sticks out about as much as it does uh, that 2020 year, which is in orange. But I leave all those prior years on there just to show you how unusual it is to see freight demand start to trend higher in the month of July. And it's remained relatively stable into the early part of August. This is highly unusual. Uh, normally, we see July kind of be an easier month. 
freight volumes, it's the second most vacation time of year. Therefore, there's a lot of people not shipping freight. Uh, it's also full of a holiday. So that is another reason we just don't see this happen every single year, including the COVID years of 2021 and 20. Well, I guess you can't really call 2022 a total COVID year, but we saw a downward trend in the month of July sequentially. So there is a little bit of surprising activity going on, even in a market that looks very bleak in terms of overall demand. Let's go to the next chart. Explain why I don't think it's back to school freight. LOTVI, big takeaway here. This is the outbound tender volume index split into the various lengths of haul. LOTVI represents freight moving more than 800 miles. And that is the one that is driving most of the increase. Long haul freight demand is driving this increase. That is typically your replenishment stuff, your go stuff going across the country, stuff going from Chicago to Dallas, et cetera. A lot of big moves going on. This is not your downstream activity or your way upstream activity. Let's go to the next chart here. Regardless of all this demand doing what it's doing, it is not having a significant influence on capacity. Tender rejection rates still below 4%. If we go to the next and last chart here and look at the NTI and NTIL, fuel's going up, rates are going down. NTIL actually shows you if you remove fuel, spot rates are starting to fall a little bit here. Ding, ding, Zach. So we're looking at these volumes and I love that aspect around looking at long haul versus short haul. So we're looking at this replenishment. Of course, we had the amazing Zach Rogers on last week talking about some of those trends here. And it's interesting to see where inventory levels have gone to compare to where they were not too long ago. Yeah, I, you know, and a, and a lot of these earnings calls, we'll, we'll point out here in a minute, are citing that inventories have largely corrected. Um, and they're already in a state of like, I guess, good. So, so my thoughts there are, well, okay, if inventories have corrected and we are seeing a little bit of a uh, pull forward here, what does that mean for this, the last quarter of the year? What does that mean for September? Like right. if they're getting ahead of it, it means two things if that's the case. Shippers and companies have figured out their demand planning is right where it needs to be. <laughs> uh, they have a renewed sense of confidence in it, which I think may be a little premature. Uh, and, but again, it doesn't hurt them right now because rates are suppressed. And yeah. if you do see some potential disruptions like we had with UPS and Yellow, it does make sense to kind of pull that activity forward a little bit. So I think there may be a little bit of that still going on here. There is a little bit of, uh, you know, government spending discussion theory in that. It's really hard to nail that down, though. It is. And I think when we're looking at the situation, of course, with inventories and being able to replenish and then some of that pull forward, I'm trying to you really kind of work this in here because you pulled in an amazing article from Grace Sharkey. One of the big things that has to go into it is that efficiency. Yeah. And we asked Dr. Zach Rogers last week, of course, what are the aspects of just in time returning? And really, when you start to think of just in time, you have to think about, okay, do we do just in time? Do we start to build, rebuild out uh, redundancies? And then yeah. the other aspect that enters is AI because that makes things all that more efficient to run. Yeah. And, and a lot of people obviously investing in that efficiency now. Supply chain management has become an investment process at this point because what worked before COVID has to change. What COVID did, uh, not just as a disease, but it exposed a ton of infrastructure vulnerabilities in supply chains. And so what do you expect people to do? They're reacting to it. They're changing the way that they have done business in the past. And I think that's, that's necessary. And the article that you're talking about here, and I want to pull this out because normally we don't talk about freight tech uh, as, as a big focal point here, but I think anybody out there 
that has an interest in technology. This is an extremely well done piece by Grace Sharkey, as you mentioned. Three questions to consider before investing in AI. And I think that, you know, technology is a way to, you know, especially in a risk off environment where we're in, that's a good way, a good example of investing in technology or in something that actually reduces your costs. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do when you're talking about deteriorating economics. It is. And one the the first one that says, what are you trying to solve? And I think this goes not just for AI, but just investment in general, because there seems so many times where, you know, maybe a company is growing at some point in time. There's going from maybe a small to midsize or something like that. And they are starting to try to solve problems that don't exist and trying to create a solution for something that's not a problem. And there's a difference between being proactive and just really spending money in areas that don't really need any resources at the moment. Yeah. And one of the big misconceptions about AI is Terminator 2, <laughs> uh, the Skynet effect here where it's talking about AI, you know, basically being replacing human intelligence. It is not that. <laughs> um, it is not remotely close to that as of yet. Uh, maybe someday. But that's not what we're talking about in this context. And I think it does a great job of kind of pointing out, hey, this is what it is right now as it stands today. And especially for people in our industry that are constantly, obviously, looking for cost control mechanisms. Removing some of that human error can be a thing. But AI is fed by human intelligence at this point. Yeah. And one of the other points I think is great is just how expansive and clean is your data. Mm -hmm. And the, this other thing that always gets me, of course, I'm, this might be my last point about free tech at, or just tech in general, is when I see, you know, small scale companies, because it's crucial to have so many different key roles. Of course, you need a sales guy, leadership, strategy, things like that, maybe an economist and things like that. But one of the big things that kind of gets me is when you start to pull in maybe an economist or maybe you pull in a data scientist to kind of analyze your data, but you don't have any data to analyze really. You're just kind of like grasping at straws here. And so how expansive is your data set? Are you really analyzing anything? Is it clean? Is it meaningful data? Because not all data is built the same. Yeah. Garbage in, garbage out. Doesn't matter. The AI learns based on that input. Yeah. And that is to me a little bit of a misnomer that it's AI, but another discussion for another day. Uh, let's move back into the freight market here. Uh, Greg uh, Miller, of course, chiming in with U.S. import volumes continue to mirror pre-COVID normal, uh, down 14% year over year container volumes, up 5% sequentially from June, talking about July volumes, and relatively unchanged versus July of 2019, according to his piece here. So my big takeaways are that we're kind of in a holding pattern in terms of volume. Now, I think our bookings data actually shows a little bit of strength uh, that I want to pull up here in just a second here. But it's that, you know, it's also reflected in some of the other people that he cites. That was Descartes that was talking about uh, the import volumes there. But Global Port Tracker predicts imports will rise 2.03 million TUs this month at ports it covers, the highest monthly tally since last October. Ben Hackett, founder of Hackett Associates, imports have not kept pace with rising sales year-to-date because retailers are working their way through inventory built up over the last 12 to 18 months. Cargo growth should resume as inventories are depleted. So if we pull up the IOTI here, this is actually supported. And this also helps explain some of that long-haul freight demand growth that I was just talking about. The IOTI measures bookings of 20-foot equivalent units coming into the United States. So this has a lead time of about 
12 to 15 days going to West Coast and about 25 to 30 days going to East Coast from Asia. So this is a decent leading indicator of future domestic freight volume that you're looking at right here. And you can see it had a nice little peak at the early part of July before resuming a further back to that 2019 line uh, in orange. But we're actually picking up right close to the COVID era type yeah. uh, import bookings. And so big so takeaway there. When you're looking at this and you're talking about, of course, this is the future freight demand, surface demand. The big thing that kind of always is lingering is that we still have so much capacity. Yeah, yeah, I know. And then that's another story. The capacity issue is going to be the theme for the foreseeable future for the freight market. But I think demand trends are extremely important to monitor regardless of the capacity, because something that we've talked about in the past is, you know, we just talked about supply chain reorganization. Is the freight coming into the same spots? And in this article, he actually, Greg actually points out that a lot of the freight volume is still going in through those eastern ports. Uh, Savannah, New York, New Jersey actually had some significant increases versus the Los Angeles Long Beach one. That's a change in the way that people traditionally did business. And I think these are going to become more relevant as capacity starts to correct closer to that demand side. Yeah. And this is going to be, you know, interesting because we start to see maybe it was a a year and a half, two years ago, where we started to see large amounts of investment going into some of these ports to really kind of build out the infrastructure because it's one thing to kind of, you know, divert some of the freight to the East Coast, but really knowing that a lot of those ports aren't going to be built to the same scale as what we see on the West Coast, that's going to be all the difference. It's almost like that conversation of like, hey, we're going to nearshore yeah. from China or reshore, but we don't have all the infrastructure there just yet. Yeah, and, and not just the infrastructure. I mean, you can't just replace that that lane that we built for 15 years yeah. overnight. Uh, but that being said, freight networks were built on the back of that flow of freight. So what happens when you remove two, 3% West Coast volume from a freight network and put it under the East Coast now? Yeah. You're, you're creating inefficiencies in the market. And it's already reflected in uh, tender rejections on the West Coast. We've seen rejection rates come off the floor of 1%. Now they're a staggering close to 4%. Right. <laughs> but what happens when capacity corrects, Anthony? And we've got, you know, less trucks available to, that are parked on the side of the road that can just go and cover this stuff. The natural flow of freight will become very apparent at that point as to how insufficient or sufficient it is covering the new normal and freight demand. Yeah, and it's always interesting to see where the position of trucks are mm -hmm. and really where the, a lot of the population sits depending on the time of the year and the part of the country. And so this is definitely going to be intriguing to watch. And we have to kind of get into the other big part because it's that time of the year. Yeah, I know. Earnings season in July, August now, I know. But, uh, you know, a couple of earnings reports here. UPS lowers full year outlook post drop in Q2 results. Now, they blamed some of the outlook on the labor dispute. Uh, they said, you know, basically saying, you know, it, it was 90, full year revenue is expected to be 93 billion, down from the prior forecast of 97 billion. Oh, um, <laughs> but the, uh, they wanted to allocate most of that to the loss of business and revenue during the potential labor dispute issue. I don't know that I buy that entirely, maybe on that forecast, but year over year volumes down consumption is down. Like yeah. 
UPS, I think, is a great economic indicator. Uh, how, do, how do you view this? Yeah, I think it's, um, I, I kind of pair it along with, of course, the demand for goods spending overall. So in the most recent credit card data, or I should say revolving credit card utilization or revolving credit utilization uh, data, we saw that there was actually a downward movement in revolving credit. And I think a lot of consumers starting to hit their upper limit. But it's an also interesting point where we start to look at the labor market because that's also, we use, I used to always talk about consumer confidence and then we switched aspects on it. And now we're probably back on the other side, but looking at the labor market, the quit rate is a good scale, I think, of how comfortable certain consumers are feeling. And we're a far ways away from the Great Recession. Uh, I'm sorry, Great Resignation, um, where a lot of folks are just leaving left and right. We're starting to see a lot of more folks staying put. So the quit rate is starting to ease in a sense. And so a lot of folks deciding, hey, maybe I'm going to stay put. So I think we're starting to see some consumers starting to hit their upper limit with credit, starting to say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to stay in this role. I'm not looking for a new position. And also, I think a big beast that not a lot of people are going to be talking about right now is going to be some of that non-revolving credit. So not just student loans, but auto loans and mortgages. Yeah. Do you think that the consumer is, is realizing that they don't have the cash in the bank anymore? I, I think somewhat. But this, the other big part is, of course, I say it all the time, I think there's some fishiness going on in some of the labor numbers. And so we're looking at job openings. It's great that you want to see this many jobs, but it's, of course, inflated. But I think we're seeing a lot of double count. And so I think you're just seeing so many folks of like, you know, these large corporations just putting feelers out because there's this time where you were able to just say, hey, you know what? Fully remote positioned. And now you're seeing, I think some companies, large corporations put out fillers for the same role in maybe 15, 20 different cities just to see, okay, what are going to be the applications that come in for this potential hybrid role, not fully remote role. And so there's just so many different dynamics in addition to the split of how many are going to be in services, hospitality, things like that, compared to, you know, some of the roles that we are seeing that are in maybe scarce uh, supply, like the high tech jobs or white collar jobs, higher paying roles. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, UPS, I mean, and that 93 billion is not a scary figure for me, economically speaking. That feels like they've got a relatively good outlook. I know they're lowering their expectations, but that feels like not a terrible thing. I know it's down, but not not the worst. Anyway, uh, XPO beats Q2 expectations. July volumes pop. <laughs> so that's reflected in our uh, data. Obviously, LTL, uh, an influence here because of yellow uh, shutting down, but less than truckload revenue fell 8% year over year. Uh, tonnage per day was down 3% for XPO and Q2, mind you, this is not fully flushed out with yellow in that situation. I know we started talking about it in June, but it wasn't like I don't think that it would have shown up in, in their figures meaningfully here. Uh, the company did see a positive inflection as July shippers began diverting freight from Carrier Yellow Corp. Um, July shipments increased 9% year over year and tonnage was up 4%. Both were 700 basis point swings from the change rates booked all uh, for all the second quarter. Um, yield was up again in July. So overall, my takeaways here is that, yes, things were down, but they could have been worse. Yeah. Uh, for XPO. If I'm looking at these, uh, this earnings sheet, yes, it's an 83 to an 87 OR, which again, pretty significant in pre-COVID times, but we're still coming out of that COVID bubble. Um, and the fact that we're in a very soft Q2 and they're still hitting sub 90 ORs at this point, we should have already seen a lot of that kind of flush out. Yeah. Now I know contracts are coming due. 
lot of bids coming out in the upcoming months, and that will be the true test. Uh, but everything else on this sheet doesn't really scare me. The pounds per shipment being down has nothing to do with anything. Revenue per shipment being down, that tells me that they were able to actually give back some money uh, in rates already. Yeah. So that hedges them to future problems. Um, and that's, I mean, I don't know. Does anything stick out to you? Yeah, I think the big thing that, of course, sticks out to me is kind of tempering the expectations for the remainder of the year. Mm -hmm. um, because whenever I, I look at these earnings, there are certain companies like, you know, you, say, you see that they have something that happened and they want to maybe diagnose it with something that is just kind of a cover-up for, yeah. for a business decision or something right. that happened. XPO consistently pretty much always makes good business decisions. And if they are seeing that, hey, we're expecting some slowing and they're kind of still outperforming or performing very well in this market, mm -hmm. I think that kind of adds to the expectation that there are going to be some significant headwinds or something to actually note going into the second half of this year. Yeah, I, I, it looks like they might have already gotten in front of some things. Time will tell. Their shipments per day are up 1.9%. Uh, so they might have gotten aggressive with their pricing structure. Is that, that's what that tells me there. Uh, moving in back into the truckload space here, Werner misses Q2 expectations. I've said it before. I'll say it a hundred more times. I don't really care about them missing financial market expectations. <laughs> um, how did you perform based on your peer grouping? How did you perform based on, you know, all every other variable in the market that you can pick other than some sort of financial market expectation? Because everybody, every expectation is missed yeah. in my book. Like there's not a lot of, oh, we got it exactly right. If you did get it exactly right, Something might, that actually might be a worse sign <laughs> um, or just dumb luck. But order missing expectations doesn't concern me. However, uh, they are, again, saying that there's going to be some headwinds moving into the uh, second half of the year. Uh, one of that being the fact that they sold off a ton of tractors. The carriers sold twice as many tractors and three times as many trailers in the period as it did a year ago in the quarter. So they're doing some aggressive cost management here, but they're also taking some gains on sale probably. And I know that they said that that's, a, that's actually propping them up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but higher interest expenses are also going to drag on their debt balance. Thank you. Federal rate increases. Um, but again, they're basically hoping that after the third quarter gets done, they think that a lot of this will get flushed out. They bought a 550 truck dedicated fleet so there's that consolidation theme of the year for these carriers. It's also keeping these, you know, maybe that carrier wouldn't have made it through this year. So right. them being able to kind of uh, suck up, I'm sorry, this isn't, this is not Warner. Warner didn't make an acquisition. I'm sorry, Schneider that made the acquisition. <laughs> Getting my large carriers mixed up here. But uh, bottom line for Warner is that they're, they're hopeful for a seasonally normal fourth quarter, noting most customers have indicated their inv inventories have already been corrected. And, and the thing that sticks out for me here, of course, Warner is a large player and if they're selling equipment, I, I think I mentioned this maybe on this show or previous show, but I anticipating that smaller operations are probably doing the same and maybe you receive some small operations looking to sell equipment just to probably make payroll, mm -hmm. just to kind of keep, you know, the doors open or not to let any staff go. And so I think of course, we're seeing a lot of, you know, smaller operations maybe running off of some of that COVID money that they were able to really yeah. kind of bank. 
But I think also, I think it wouldn't be too uncommon to hear stories about certain companies starting to sell equipment just to kind of make payroll or just kind of keep that, that, I guess, you know, doors open just a little bit longer or just and keep operations running. And it's crushing the value of those, of the used equipment market. Yeah. Uh, because obviously I think we went to 2X plus during COVID in terms of used truck uh, values versus the year before. And now we're almost all the way back down. Right. Um, so last but not least, Schneider, uh, Schneider, like I said earlier, they bought a 500 truck dedicated carrier, uh, M&M transport at consolidation impact. That's, that's another thing that's going to keep capacity in the market longer than it might have been. Again, Schneider, all these larger fleets banked a big pile of cash during COVID. Right. So it's enabling them to keep not just themselves operational longer, but some of these smaller carriers and smaller fleets longer than they might necessarily would have been in a 2019 market. We were talking about exits every single week. Now, not so much. It's still, it's more about mergers and acquisitions and selling off equipment and things like that. Uh, but again, Schneider, outlook calls for a slight sequential step down in EPS during the third quarter as contract na- negotiations, they're going through some contract renegotiations. So that means they're going to take a step down as we've seen. Uh, the fourth quarter should improve from that level as normal seasonality presents some pro- project opportunities. So everybody's a little optimistic. They're reducing their expectations based on Q2 results, but they're still kind of optimistic about a fourth quarter. Yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting, of course, to see what some of the impacts are from Yellow, of course. Quick little econ tidbit, initial jobs claims increased to over 240,000. But that cutoff is, I think, at August 5th. Uh, so I don't think we'll see the actual ramifications from you. Tell everybody what the what you're looking for is a benchmark value. So if it goes, I'm going to be watching personally anything over 260. If it goes to like 270, 280s, I think, okay, this is like a yellow light yeah. flashing, not code red just yet. 300,000, I think that's when we start to see some really big conversations happening. Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of noise. <laughs> a lot of noise sitting out there right now. I think the jobs market is relatively good, though. Dave Powell's trying to fix that. I mean, yeah, I know, I know. All right, everybody, uh, keep your head up. <laughs> Drink water. Go for a walk. Call your mom. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs>